welcome to another episode of the Safe and Reliable podcast. I'm your host, Salima Ismail. In this episode, we speak with Paul Green, a senior HRO expert at Safe and Reliable. Paul has had a fascinating career, starting out in nursing and then dealing with some astonishing patient safety and healthcare cultural issues. But let's start at the beginning. Initially, as you know, a boy of the 60s, mama wants you to be a doctor. So the plan was that I was going to go to medical school. But, you know, as as life goes on, things change a little bit and, and life gets in the way sometimes. And not to start a pity party or that, that kind of stuff. But my dad died the day I started college. And that sort of threw some college career plans into a little bit of a tailspin, because you can imagine that was kind of a stressful thing to have happen. And then about six months after that, my mom got diagnosed with breast cancer. And so so my college career turned into one of trying to work. I worked the whole time I was going to school and then take care of my mom. So I actually graduated with a degree in biology, but my grades were nowhere near what they would need to be to go into medical school. So I had started working in the emergency room at our local hospital kind of right out of high school, maybe about 19 or so. And I wound up getting hired as we called them escorts or orderlies in those days. You couldn't be a a boy and be a nurse's aide, even though the job was the same. Boys were orderlies and girls were nurses' aides. So I worked in the ER. Actually, it was the nurses that I worked with that talked me into becoming a nurse. Nursing's actually been really good to me. I'm somebody who gets bored easily. And so nursing has always offered the opportunity and opened doors for me to do a lot of different things. Paul's nursing career progressed quite a bit. Some of the things he did include being a staff nurse in an adolescent oncology program, getting his master's as a child health clinical specialist, and later on teaching pediatric nursing. Eventually, however, Paul was pulled into the world of quality management. This was the late 80s, and a friend of mine was a recruiter at a hospital close to where I lived, and they had a new position that they were starting called a quality manager, and she called me and said, you know, I think you'd be really good for this job, and I said, well, what is it? (laughs) What the heck is a quality manager? And she said, you know, it's really helping the hospital make care better. What Paul began to realize was that he was entering a time where the thinking around healthcare processes was starting to change. What was interesting about quality in healthcare in those days was there was thought that, you know, first of all, work is a process with inputs and outputs and steps along the way to producing the outputs. And the outputs, of course, depend on what the inputs are. And so in healthcare, we started looking at things that were tangential to patient care. So things like how did we make meals stay hot when they got delivered to patients? What are sort of the variations that cause us to get meals that are delivered cold or stale or whatever? And how how can we improve that? How can we improve the registration process? How can we improve supply chain, supply delivery? And so there was all these things that we were talking about that, that were very separated from clinical care. So Paul, along with some of his other contemporaries, began to ask questions about how to take this attitude of quality management and apply it to clinical care. 
there were a number of professional organizations that had already started to publish evidence-based guidelines around how do you take care of patients. So one of the early ones was how do you take care of a patient with a heart attack? Well, people have been taking care of patients with heart attacks forever. And we all kind of knew things like, well, you know, when they come in, they should get an EKG. Gee, they should probably get some lab work done. Gee, you know, while they're here, they should have some patient teaching. Gee, there's some medications we should give them, you know. And so what we started taking a look at is we, if we know what the evidence is, let's see how well we're doing in terms of meeting those steps. Are we doing what we're supposed to do? When they come in, do they get an EKG? When they come in, do they get an aspirin? How long does it take to get that done? And so we started to take a look at measuring compliance with those clinical steps, timing into those clinical steps, and then the processes that led to issues with timing, issues with compliance, those kinds of things to start to make improvements. It was very rudimentary. Medical records were on paper, so we did a lot of chart review on paper, but just started to count, gee, how long does it take to get an EKG done from the time you get in the door? Who gets an aspirin? Who doesn't get an aspirin? Why does that happen? So that we could start to take a look at how we could make things more predictable. But creating and tracking these clinical metrics led to a larger philosophical discourse in the field. We are having this professional dialogue about is medicine an art or is medicine a science? And traditionally, physicians had been educated to believe that medication was an art. And certainly, to some degree, medication is an art because the patients are always different and their circumstances are different. But at the same point in time, we were beginning to see a blossoming of evidence that showed if you provided these therapeutic steps in this particular disease process, your outcomes were better than if you didn't apply those steps. At the same point in time that this was happening, part of the driver was this was also the rise of managed care. And managed care started to be really interested in paying for good care and not paying for care that was less than optimal. So in this position of quality and process evaluation, Paul ended up seeing firsthand the kinds of things that went wrong. There was a hospital that twice removed the wrong patient from a ventilator and killed them and then cut off the wrong leg on a patient. And all within about a, a year, year and a half's worth of time. So really some catastrophic kinds of kinds of things. At my own hospital, I started to see some interesting problems in relationship to how care was provided, about errors that would happen. And part of my job was to try to work with the medical staff about changing practice. We had one situation at one hospital I worked at. Uh, we had a big cardiac surgery program, probably two big for the size of the hospital we were. And so there became to be a sort of factory-like mentality in terms of how you handled cardiac surgery patients. And what was happening is that the physician's assistants were harvesting uh, the blood vessels that were going to be used in bypass and also then were closing those sites. And we saw a large spike in pretty serious infections in patients because of that practice. That was something that we had to do some observations to find out about and then work with physicians to to change that practice. But what that meant was the surgeons were having to spend more time with patients. And so that cut down on the volume that they could do at once. So, you know, you're kind of running that balance between the CEO and the CFO who wants money coming in and wants a large volume of patients coming in. But at the same point in time, patients with infections would stay in a hospital a long time. They'd cost a lot of money to care for, and they don't look good if you want to have a high quality program for folks to come to. In addition to this balancing act within the hospitals, there was another group that factored into the mix. 
payers like folks like Blue Cross and Blue Shield and others were really trying to push towards better outcomes for patients, better patient safety, um, those kinds of issues. And so this is where I started to get involved in some of the more patient safety and risk-focused areas through participation in organizations like the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I think we started attending the IHI National Forum its second year and continued to participate and work with Don Berwick and Maureen Vizagano and the folks at the IHI to try to figure out how to do things better. This was some interesting timing because this occurred in 1998, the same year that the Institute for Medicine published a groundbreaking paper. The Institute for Medicine published their seminal work on patient safety and harm called First Do No Harm, in which they estimated there were 44 to 98,000 unnecessary deaths a year due to healthcare error. Hugely controversial when it came out. We've come to know that that number has way underestimated the amount of harm in healthcare, but in those days, that was shocking to hear that number and a lot of controversy in relationship to that. So I was lucky enough to be able then to partner with some folks at the IHI, and we started started one of the first patient safety improvement collaboratives in the country in 1999. And actually, that was my opportunity where I first met Alan Frankel and Michael Leonard <laughs> was through their work that they were doing in relationship to uh, patient safety with the IHI. And none of us knew what to do. We all sort of started trying to figure it out and let's said and said, you know, let's try some stuff and, and, and see what happens here. So Paul and his team started to ask some different questions. What's the culture like in these organizations that are causing problems? Because we had all seen issues of poor behavior between members of the healthcare team for years. Lots of dysfunction in the culture pieces. So we said, let's start to take a look at this. We know there's harm, and we know that there are things like medication errors and surgical errors. We're not quite sure how to define this stuff yet. We're not quite sure how to measure it consistently across healthcare organizations, but let's just start taking a look at factors that come into play in terms of making medication errors, factors that come into play in terms of making surgical errors. And we, you know, we soon began to see that a lot of the factors involved, how did team members work together and what did the culture in the organization look like? Paul worked with his VHA team members to create a set of rudimentary questions that were later developed into the AHRQ culture survey. And the response was something else. I think we had 30 some organizations I got about 10,000 responses from staff nurses and physicians and other staff within organizations about what did safety culture look like. And I had 1,500 pages of stories and stories that, that would make your hair curl. And Paul's not exaggerating. The stories he can share go beyond unprofessional. They are tales of abuse. There was the nurse that was caring for an orthopedic patient, and the orthopod came in and said, you know, Joe Blow next door, can you take his ice pack off? And she's like, yeah, I'll get to it. And, but she's dealing with an issue with this particular patient who couldn't leave right then. So about 10 minutes later, the orthopedic surgeon comes by again with the ice pack in his hand, throws it at her and hits her in the head and says, I thought I told you to take that ice pack off that patient. There was the story of a chief medical officer who, I think the chief nursing officer went in with some paperwork that he had to complete, and he pulled a switchblade out of his boot and stabbed the paperwork and told her to get the F out of his office. 
Similar to many instances of abuse, these encounters can be unfathomable to those who have not encountered it themselves. So Paul had to get the word out. How do we get people to understand these stories and to want to take a look at what's going on in their culture? So for one of the collaborative sessions, we hired a theater company and we gave them the stories and they created live vignettes out of some of the stories and acted them out in front of the attendees at the conference. And then we had attendees from the audience come up and coach people about how they might react differently to de-escalate those situations before they led to the negative outcomes. And it was fascinating. I don't think anybody had tried anything like that. It certainly wasn't dry dialogue. It just kind of brought the situation to life. Even though seeing it acted out brought some awareness and tactics to the conference attendees, there were some who needed a stronger wake-up call. Four of them had come up to attend this session. There were two physicians and two nurses. And on the way home, the physician said to the nurses, oh, that was interesting, but that was a bunch of crap. You know, that never goes on. We don't have those kinds of things. And the nurses proceeded to say, oh, just wait a minute. (laughs) Let us tell you about what we put up with you every day. And let us tell you what we put up with you personally every day that reflects those things that we just saw. And that was enough to convince these two physicians. It was the first time anybody had had that kind of a confrontive, honest dialogue with these physicians, and they were like, wow, I I guess we do have to do something here. But sometimes a workshop is not enough. Sometimes the culture gets so toxic, the bad behavior goes unchecked for so long that it takes something truly outrageous to happen to incite change. It was actually a large, well-respected medical system, but their problem was they had a huge lack of transparency, and so they had lots of issues that were going on within the organization, but everybody was afraid to bring them up and talk about them. And it culminated in a situation that happened over a Labor Day weekend. A physician, a cardiac interventionalist, assaulted a patient on the cath lab table. Now, this physician was well known to the organization for having behavioral problems. When I got to look at his file, his behavioral file was at least 15 inches thick of complaints and investigations that had happened with him over the years. In this, he he was brilliant, someone who was an innovator in his professional areas, had developed a couple of cardiac stent devices, a really smart guy, but some problems with personal skills. This physician's behavioral issues was no secret, but he was able to act with no consequence because his technical skills were valued more than his interpersonal ones. So with that in mind, it's a little easier to see how the following events unfolded. He decided that on a Friday night on a holiday weekend, he was going to do a cardiac bath on a patient who was narcotic dependent. And he was going to do this without the support of an anesthesiologist or anybody to help manage pain and sedation in somebody who is narcotic dependent. He had a team of staff members with him who asked if he wanted to get an anesthesia consult. He refused. Meaning that he was well aware of the implications of his decision, but still pressed on. So in the middle of the procedure, the patient became combative. It became combative because the sedation was not being managed appropriately. Which is a pretty reasonable reaction. And the physician's solution to the patient becoming combative was to punch the patient. Not once, but multiple times. Which is not a reasonable reaction. 
They got some more medication into him so that he calmed down. The staff were appalled. Again, reasonable. They safely finished the procedure. The physician left the cath lab, changed his clothes out of his scrubs, and came into the recovery area where the patient was and punched him again. He called the patient an animal and said, don't you ever act like that again, blah, 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 blah. Again, not reasonable and downright criminal. So the staff immediately called the police and the physician was charged with assault. Just kidding. Here's Paul explaining what really happened. In this particular organization, the staff was terrified and they didn't come forward until Tuesday. So this was Friday night, Labor Day weekend. They came forth on Tuesday and came in a group of seven of them to the administrative office and said, we're terrified, we don't know how to say this, but we're gonna, we, we have to tell you what happened. And so they, they gave their report to the CEO and to the risk manager about what had occurred and nothing happened. And this physician who punched a patient twice would have been allowed to continue practicing consequence-free if it wasn't for some external influence. Now, in the state of California, those things need to be reported to the state. So the risk manager did her job. This was reported on Tuesday. The state came in on Friday and found that neither the CEO nor the medical executive committee had done anything to restrict this guy's privileges after he had demonstrably assaulted a patient. Their response was, well, you know, he was angry. He's a great guy. As infuriating as the he's a great guy excuse can be, there was another layer to why the hospital leadership did not act. One of the things was that Friday night, that Friday that the state came in, the CEO was flying out of town to go to his son's wedding. And he asked me to give him a ride to the airport. And so I drove him to the airport and I said, you have to do something. You have to intervene and stop this. And he said, if I intervene, I'm going to lose my job. And I said, if you don't intervene, you're going to lose a lot more than your job. And so that was the level of fear there was up to the CEO to step up and do anything in relationship to the physician. Well, you know, the state, the state didn't quite see it that way. Fortunately, the state of California and licensing authorities led a nine-month investigation. It was a huge comeuppance and cultural shift between the old guard medical staff and the newer members of the medical staff around how could you let this happen, knowing that there was this long history, and then how could you let this happen when there's demonstrable proof that he harmed a patient? And so huge, huge discussions, huge cultural shift. And that, that's probably one of the most serious examples of that that I've come across in my career. Even though that may be one of the most serious examples, it's safe to say that Paul has seen some things. I've had a fascinating career, Salima. I've done all kinds of things. <laughs> and now I get to work with the best people in the world. I get to work with the folks that are safe and reliable. So I know some of you listening might think that this is just some shameless self-promotion on our end, but it's not entirely. So I've been a nurse now for 40 years. I look back on my career and the one constant for me, even though I made lots of job changes and did lots of different things, the one constant for me was wanting to make sure that we were doing right by patients and that we weren't unnecessarily harming anyone, that we were being the best that we could be. And so when it came time to look at where do I want to end my career at, I wanted to end my career with the best. And I wanted to end my career with folks that I could still learn from. And for me, that's the folks that's safe and reliable. And the day I I stop learning is the day I'm going to be dead.
If you would like to contact Paul Green or would like to submit any questions or comments about the podcast, please email podcast at srh.care. That's all for today. Safe and Reliable Podcast was produced and edited by me, Salima Ismail. Our theme music was produced by MonkeyMan535 from freesound.org. Special thanks to Paul Green, Chad Lenenga, and Alder Jamal. And a very special thank you to you for tuning in. See you again soon.